Will you please pray with me? Now, Lord, take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. I know that with the way things are right now, many people are enjoying a little more screen time. But I wonder what your favorite movie trilogy is. Perhaps you've had time to watch it. It's a conversation that I often have with my friends. Perhaps it's one that you might put in the chat box on the screen right now so we can all see what your favorite is. You know, like a lot of people, mine would probably be The Lord of the Rings. But maybe for you, it's the original, or some would say the only, Star Wars trilogy. Or perhaps you like something newer, maybe The Hobbit Or maybe it's the first three Indiana Jones movies because the fourth one, we just got to forget about that one. Or how about Leslie Nielsen in Naked Gun 1, 2 and a half and 33 and a third? Maybe the 80s fun of Back to the Future. That's for you, Johnny Keys. Perhaps the spice booth of Austin Powers or maybe the much more serious Godfather gangster movies. Perhaps Sergio Leone's unintentional spaghetti western, the Dollars Trilogy starring Clint Eastwood. Maybe it's Mad Max or Matt Damon's Jason Bourne, or perhaps it's Bruce Willis in the original Die Hard movies. The list goes on and on. It's becoming longer as studios take less financial risks and produce more and more sequels. One thing I've noticed about sequels, though, is they're generally exactly the same movie plot as the first one, just done in a different setting. I mean, if a studio hits a winning formula, then why not just repeat it? After all, it worked for every single episode of the A-Team. For instance, (laughs) take the Home Alone trilogy. And I'm only counting the three that I own. And it's one that we pull out every Christmas in our family. And the story's basically this. Number one, Christmas is here and everything's good. Number two, things go bad when a small boy gets left behind somewhere, perhaps at home, in New York City, somewhere else. Number three, some particularly stupid criminals try to steal something from the boy that he doesn't want them to steal. And then number four, hilarious yet incredibly violent slapstick pain is inflicted upon said criminals before the small boy's parents reunite with said child and Christmas is saved. Three stories with different settings, but one plot line and four key movements. Well, you know, for the past few weeks, church has been a little bit less like Home Alone and perhaps more like Bill Murray's Groundhog Day. I don't know if you've realized that we've actually been stuck on one day for these few weeks. Easter Day, Luke's been giving us his resurrection trilogy, breaking that first Easter Day into three stories. First of all, we have the resurrection of Jesus and the women at the tomb. Second of all, we have the encounter of the two disciples with Jesus on the road to Emmaus and their hearts burn as they listen to Jesus who's unrecognized until he explains the Old uh, Old Testament scriptures to them and breaks bread with them. And then finally, in today's gospel reading, Jesus appears to the startled disciples on Easter evening. And what's interesting about this trilogy is that we have three stories in different settings with one plot and four key movements. Yes, all three stories follow exactly the same outline. First of all, we have confusion. Then we have rebuke. Then we have instruction. And then finally, we have witness. So let's turn to our third and final story and see what God would say to us through his word 
today. And as we take up the third and final story in this trilogy, we see confusion bordering on pandemonium. The 11, remember uh, Judas, the betrayer, is dead. They've gathered behind closed doors in Jerusalem. And first, the apostle Peter's amazed them by relating that he's personally seen the risen Lord earlier that morning. Well, then this is followed by the entrance of the two disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. And they have this report of their astounding astounding encounter with Jesus and their hearts burning. And then this grand moment of recognition when he breaks bread with them. And now this huge plot twist happens and we encounter our first major theme. It's confusion. In verses 36 and 37, we read this. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. Much like the women encountering the angels at the empty tomb and much like the two disciples who didn't recognize Jesus as he walks with them, as Jesus appears to the 11, they're confused or as Luke puts it, they're startled and frightened. There's confusion because he's just appeared in what is probably a locked room and also because they're not sure if this is a ghost or a spirit of some kind. Plus, they're confused because they haven't understood what Jesus has been teaching them for the past three years. Which brings us to our second theme, rebuke. In verse 38, we read this. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? Again, much like the women at the tomb who are rebuked by the angels for seeking the living among the dead... Or like the two disciples on the way to Emmaus who are rebuked by Jesus for being foolish and slow of heart to believe, so too the disciples are now gently chastised for being troubled and having doubts in their hearts about what would happen. Hadn't he made it clear that he would rise again? Well, to prove it's not some trick of the light or some kind of David Copperfield trick, he shows them that he's really physically present. This isn't some group hallucination. Using their God-given senses, Jesus proves he's really risen from the dead. In verses 39 to 43, we read this, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see for a, a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he took it and ate it before them. First of all, Jesus appeals to their sight. They can actually see him. They can see these scars he has. Then second, he appeals to their hearing. They can hear him talking. And finally, he appeals to their sense of touch. He invites them to touch him, to see that he is real. And no, Jesus isn't some disembodied spirit or ghost. He can eat food, he can be touched, and presumably he can be hugged. And I'm sure there was a lot of hugging going on. The risen Christ and Jesus of Nazareth are one and the same person. However, the resurrected body of the risen Christ is gloriously different from his pre-resurrection body in that his body is now fully healed and strong and it's not subject to the death and decay of the flesh. And that's good news, friends, good news for you and me. It's part of the hope of the resurrection for all of us who repent and follow Jesus. And it's one reason it's so important that we know that Jesus isn't just a spirit. Because one day, 
we too will have this kind of body, a body fully healed, a body that's strong and eternal, a body that will walk in the new heaven and the new earth, a place of no more crying, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. What Jesus is doing here is he's giving his disciples a necessary and loving rebuke that brings them true hope. And then it's followed right away by a teaching moment. You see, the third theme in our stories is that of instruction. In verses 44 through 47, we read this. Then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. In the story two weeks ago, the angels at the tomb referred the women back to Christ's words. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise and they remembered his words. Then last week, Jesus chides the despondent couple on the road to Emmaus saying, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And now in this week's story, he explains his passion and resurrection through the Old Testament scriptures, the only scriptures that he had. These are my words that I had spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. As the commentator Leon, Leon Morris says, the solemn division of scripture into the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, the three divisions of the Hebrew Bible, indicates that there is no part of scripture that does not bear witness to Jesus. Every story, yes, even in the Old Testament, yes, even in Leviticus, points us to Jesus. That's what I love about the Jesus Storybook Bible that we recommend at Holy Cross that families read together. Its author, Sally Lloyd-Jones, does a great job of showing how each Old Testament story points us to Jesus. But why is it so important that Christ teaches them from Scripture? After all, he's right there with them. Well, as Kent Hughes puts it, again, we must understand that one of the reasons Jesus taught them from Scripture was that he did not want them to rest their belief in his resurrection on their personal experience alone. He was not interested in their becoming an elite group with a special knowledge of Christ. Resting their faith on a miracle was not sufficient. He wanted them to ground their experience of his resurrection on the massive, massive testimony and perspective of Scripture. You know, if we had time, I would do the same today, much like the Apostle Peter does in our New Testament reading from Acts. But we can't right now. I, I would recommend a resource to help you do this, though. This is something I've given away to a lot of people. I, I can't give it to you in person right now, but I'd love for you to get online, perhaps, and order this book. It's called The Story. And you can find it on Amazon and most other online bookstores. It's just $5. 
it is a great way to read through the story of Scripture in about 29 chapters. I encourage you to take that up uh, right now. That Easter night, though, privately locked up with the 11, Jesus grounded gospel and mission in the Old Testament Scriptures. He showed that the law and the prophets and the Psalms all taught his suffering. They all taught his death. They all taught his resurrection. All taught mission to the world beginning with Jerusalem, the very heartland of the Jewish faith, the place where the incarnate son suffered, died, and rose again. Yes, as Paul writes, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Well, finally, we see the fourth key element that's crucial in all three of these stories, witness. The women hurry from the empty tomb to witness by sharing the good news with the 11. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus hurry back to Jerusalem to witness by sharing what's happened along the way. And here, Jesus makes it formal, saying in verses 48 and 49, you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. He's promising the Holy Spirit, a promise reiterated in Acts chapter one at his ascension. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This gospel, this good news of the resurrection was something that had to be shared with the whole world. And yet in more good news, They wouldn't have to do it in their own strength. Yes, Jesus was leaving them, but he wasn't going to leave them alone. 50 days later at Pentecost, he would send the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the very power of God to equip and empower them for this mission. So there we have it. Four key movements, confusion, instruction, rebuke, and witness. But what does this story say to us today? Well, in these difficult and unusual times, it's tempting for us to react with confusion, perhaps with fear or doubts, anxiety. I know that I've experienced all of these emotions since the middle of March myself. But I believe Jesus would say and is saying to us, didn't I warn you about this? Why are you surprised? Hear what he says in Matthew 24. Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginnings of birth pains. And then in John 16, in the world, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Pain, tribulation, and suffering in this present life are all guaranteed by Jesus. But after this loving rebuke, I believe Jesus would point us to the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that we might be affirmed in the faith and hope that we have because of him, a faith and hope grounded in the miracle of his resurrection 
but also in his scriptures, the scriptures that reveal his incredible love for us, shown through his life, death, resurrection, and ascension, and promise to return. And finally, he would say to us, now go, go and share the good news. Share it with your family, share it with your friends, share it with your neighbors, share it with your enemies, share it with anyone who will listen to you. And yes, that may terrify you, but if you will trust in the power of the Holy Spirit that I have placed within you, then you can rely in my strengths and in my words and not your own. You know, one of the things I've loved about this pandemic is the creativity of some of our nation's best comedians and entertainers. And one who's truly read the pulse of the nation is John Krasinski, better known as Jim from the sitcom The Office. Each week since this pandemic began, Krasinski, with the help of his family, has been producing a 20-minute show called Some Good News. He's trying to give people hope during these difficult times. And so he finds all the good stuff that's going on, whether it's dads throwing proms for their daughters, whether it's service workers singing happy birthday to the elderly who are stuck in nursing homes without being able to reach their family, whether it's dance routines done by nurses as people come off their ventilators, perhaps it's people giving away toilet paper and hand sanitizer to delivery drivers, maybe it's neighbors mowing the lawns of their neighbors um, who are deployed soldiers, and much more. And guess what? Over 2 million people have subscribed to this channel. 2 million. You should check it out. But note what people want. They want hope. They want to witness love in action. They want good news, gospel. And friends, we have the best news of all to share. Freedom from sin and death and the hope of eternal life. We can help people move from fear to faith, much like those first disciples, if we'll just present to them the risen, living Lord Jesus as revealed through our own experience of him and through the scriptures. As we come to a close, there's a saying that's used in church that seems appropriate. It comes from old time revival meetings. And it's still used among more lively churches, shall we say, generally African-American churches. When the preacher's done preaching in one of these churches, he'll call for a witness. Can I get a witness? He'll say. To which the response is usually, amen. (laughs) That means he or she is calling on the congregation for a member to come up to the front and witness about what God's done for them in their lives. And then a member of the church filled with the Spirit will come forward and testify. Someone who's personally experienced the blessings of the Lord preaching to his or her fellow church members as a witness. Today, friends, I believe Jesus is saying to us, can I get a witness? Will you testify to what I have done in your life, to the truth of what you've experienced through me and the truth as revealed in scripture? And will you share the greatest story ever told, greater than any of the movie trilogies mentioned at the beginning, a true story that sits at the very heart of history? Friends, let's be a gospel people, devoted to the mission and power and passionate conviction of the Holy Spirit. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, come and help us to be your witnesses today and every day. Fill us with the power of your spirit to go out and to share who you are to the world, both from our personal experience and from the experience that you have revealed through scripture to us, the truth of who you are. We pray this in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.